This episode is brought to you by Maine Crisp, gluten-free fruit and nut crackers made with simple and natural ingredients. Learn more at mainecrisp.com. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who I think is inspiring in work and in life. And right now, I'm in the middle of a coffee series because I drink coffee, I like coffee, but I don't know a whole lot about coffee, and I'm trying to learn, I'm trying to match some education with my newfound obsession. And so today I have as my guest someone who knows so much about coffee. She has a podcast and a newsletter called Boss Barista. And she also is part of this really cool project called the Matchbook Coffee Project. Um, welcome, Ashley Rodriguez. I'm so happy to have you here. Hi, Dana. I'm so excited to be here as well. So I read a lot of your interviews, and your first question always is, how'd you get into coffee? And I'm going to start there with you because you are deeply into coffee. That's true. I'm I'm in the thick of it. <laughs> you are. So when did it begin, and how did this become such a passion for you? Uh, so I actually, which is silly to say, I got into coffee a little bit later than maybe some of my colleagues, which is I got into coffee when I was 23. <laughs> um, I feel like for a lot of my colleagues, it's like, oh, I did in high school and then it grew from there. Our industry tends to skew a little bit younger. But I was a middle school math and science teacher in New York City right out of college. And it was so tough for me. I was a baby teaching babies, essentially. And I was sitting at a coffee shop that doesn't exist anymore. It was in Williamsburg. It's called El Bait. And I was sitting outside on their balcony. It was the summer of 2010. And I had a friend. We were hanging out over the summer. And he was like, you know, I'm just going to go get a job at a coffee shop because he ran out of money. And I was like, wow, that sounds so much better to me than going back to school just because I had a really tough year. And I wasn't sure that I was emotionally ready to go back to the classroom. So that day, I literally took the train up to my school went up to my principal and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Tried to apply to a coffee shop job at the coffee shop that he worked. Uh, they wouldn't hire me. And I ended up working at a really, really busy coffee shop in Times Square as my first job. And I'm not sure that it was coffee necessarily that I really fell in love with as much as it was being in service to people. Let's talk about the comparison between working as a teacher in New York City and then working in coffee. They both seem to be in service to me. What was it that was so particularly hard about the working with those city kids? And was any of that repeated sort of in the barista life? I think I was perhaps a little bit too young at that time. So I was 22 years old. I think in programs that generally encourage very young college students to go and teach in underserved schools, there's a very real white savior complex of like, I'm going to go into this classroom. I'm going to teach these kids. They're going to love me. It's going to be like a stand and deliver sort of situation. And it's just not because we got, what, six weeks of education and training. I think now I have the emotional capacity to understand what children need now and how to not take it so personally, because at the end of the day, you know, I'd go home and I'd cry and I'd be like, why don't these kids want to learn math? And I'm like, well, because you're not, you're not relating to them. Like you're not finding like what it is. That's the connection between what they need to know and where their interests lie. You just kind of assumed you go into this classroom and be this charismatic leader and do your thing. Um, 
teaching still comes up in my life every day. I think about how people learn and how people take information all the time. And I think about that a lot when I'm a barista as well, because I think coffee can be so complex and so convoluted. And even like you were saying, like you're still learning about coffee and you're in the food industry. Um, When I think about beer, I think about wine. I'm like, they have thousands of years on us. Coffee really only became a big consumer product in the way that we like go to retail stores and we consume coffee in cafes in this very particular way, like maybe in the 1960s or 70s with Pete's Coffee and Starbucks. But I think working in coffee would make me now actually a better teacher just because I've really learned to listen to people and take in what they're giving me. So if a person comes in and they're really down for whatever reason, like me being like, hey, how's it going? That's not going to work. But being a little more like, hey, like what's going on? Like maybe I'm going to give you a cookie today. You know, like something like that, just being able to read people better and kind of being able to understand your environment better. Because like I said, I I went into the classroom thinking like, I'm just going to change the world. And I gave no context to what was going on around me. And I think coffee really helped me build that context. So you fell in love with the service and this, it must've been so busy. I can't imagine working in a Times Square coffee shop as the first place, just the volume there. Uh, But when did you actually decide that coffee itself was of interest? And what was the first coffee that sort of piqued your interest? You're like, oh, actually, it's not just this job. It's like, it's going to be my obsession. I think for a long time, I didn't know that coffee could be a job beyond being a barista or being a store manager. So I worked at that coffee shop in Times Square for about a year, and I learned so much. And then I started working at a coffee shop in Brooklyn, New York, and I was managing that place. And my boss asked me about a thing called barista camp. And I was like, what is that? That that can't be a thing. Oh, I love that. It's like band camp. It's totally like band camp. Um, but he was like, you should go to this barista camp. You should learn more about coffee. And I was like, that seems ridiculous. Um, and it was. It was in Roanoke, Virginia. It was at the same resort where they filmed Dirty Dancing. And there were Dirty Dancing references everywhere. And <laughs> I was like, this is, this, this can't be a real thing. But then about 150 or so other people went, other coffee professionals. And I think that that was the first time I'd ever heard of even the phrase coffee professional. And I was like, oh, you can do other things in coffee. There were green coffee buyers. There were people who roasted coffee. There were people who own their own businesses. And even to this day, I've been in coffee for the last 11 years. I am learning so much, even with the Matchbook Coffee Project that you mentioned earlier. Like, I'm not a roaster. I've never roasted coffee. I have never been on that end of the coffee industry. And I'm like, wow, there's still so much for me to learn. If I decided tomorrow that like, I've done all this writing and I've done all this barista work, like what am I going to learn next? There's a totally new avenue for me to explore. And I think that that's what really intrigued me was that I just wanted to keep learning. This is so interesting because at the end of the day, it sounds like you're not the person who loves coffee because of the cherry notes or because of the grower or because of the ritual. There's a lot of reasons that people fall in love with coffee. Like my relationship with coffee is pretty much about the ritual of coffee. Like I like choosing my coffee or roaster and learning about whoever that is. I love the grinding. I do a pour over. Like it's imperfect in every way, but there's just something that I like about it slows my day down and then it speeds it up. That was sort of my way in. And then I, once I get beyond that, I'm a little bit overwhelmed by the particulars. But it, it seems like those are more intellectual issues to you rather than, you know, what drew you to it. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I love tasting coffee and I love building my palate. And I think that coffee has made me a better consumer of just everything. With coffee, like you said, it's really, really hard to tell the difference between certain things. Like if you have a Brazilian coffee one day and you have an Ethiopian coffee the next day, you're like, what is the difference between these two? I have no idea. But the single biggest thing that changed my coffee education is tasting side by side, is just being able to say like, have the experience in the moment. If you go to a coffee shop and they have two different coffees on their menu, and it could be anywhere, like Starbucks has usually two different coffees on rotation, just ordering both of them at the same time and then being able to taste them and not even necessarily articulating there's a cherry note in here and there's a strawberry note. Like who can tell the difference between that? That's for professional baristas. There's barista competitions where they do all that. But being able to just say, I think this is sweeter I think that this is more acidic. This tastes heavier to me. Having that comparison, I think, was the thing for me that made me feel confident in tasting and being able to articulate that, just being able to sip these two and being like, there's a difference here. What is that difference? And like just going through my checklist of very, very basic tasting notes. And I think that that's kind of where we fail in coffee a little bit is that we put these tasting notes out for people. And then we don't really give them the context to be like, you don't have to taste that. That's not the rule. You know, Um, it's okay if you taste something totally different, just being able to say it out loud is really the exciting part. And when did you begin the boss barista? So that started probably in late 2016. So I was the online editor for barista magazine for three years. So at that time I was the online editor. I wrote a fair amount of articles for their online presence. And I was doing a series on coffee podcast. I think this was like maybe a year after Serial came out. So like this is, you know, the boom of of, of podcasts. Um, and I fell really into that rabbit hole of like, oh, wow, this is an amazing podcast. Like what are podcasts? Like how can I learn more about them? So I was really intrigued by our specific industry podcast. And I found that I wasn't excited about anything that was really out there. And almost all the podcasts that were out there were hosted by men. And I started talking to a friend of mine who had his own podcast. We did a couple of episodes together. It's called Porta Filter. It's hosted by Nick Cho. So I asked a friend of mine, her name is Jasper Wild, if she would be interested in doing this podcast with me. We got together and we started interviewing people. But then as I kind of kept doing Boss Barista, I was like, what is important to me? What are the things that I'm not hearing about? Who are the people who are talking about things that are just like not getting a spotlight? And as I centered it more on the things that I was interested in, I realized that the podcast got more and more powerful because I was able to ask better questions. So anytime I just see something on the internet where I'm like, oh, that's something I don't know about, like who would know about this? Or that person's really interesting let's do a 40 minute conversation with them and see like what topics are interesting to them. So that's kind of how Boss Barista has evolved over time. Um, And I've been doing it for the last four years, but it really is like one of the great pleasures of my life is being able to ask people questions about like how they got to where they are and giving people blueprint if they admire that person. So I recently interviewed this guy named Nigel Price, who's absolutely incredible. He owns Drip Coffee Makers in Brooklyn. He actually has like an all pour over bar. So he has an espresso machine, so you can order like lattes and cappuccinos and things like that. But he really wanted to focus on pour overs. Dana, I know you're familiar with New York, but I feel like there was a time when I lived in New York where pour overs had like a meteoric rise and then just like a pitfall of just like, no one likes to do these. They slow down service. They're just like finicky. Like I said, like I worked at this coffee shop in Times Square, like stopping service to go make a pour over would have been a nightmare. And I would have hated it as a barista. So Nigel 
decided to be like, well, this is a design issue, essentially. He worked with his baristas really, really intentionally to dial in coffees, make sure that everyone got to taste them and made pour overs kind of the front and center versus like, okay, someone ordered a pour over. I have to go grab the pour over setup. I have to find space because there's no dedicated space. It's almost never facing the customer. So I can't talk to them about it. It's just, it's just a completely halt of service. So he really thought about this problem and it wasn't like, it's not that people don't want pour overs and it's not like baristas don't like making them. It's that if it interrupts service, then it becomes a nuisance. So I'd love to talk about some of the questions that have been burning for you on the podcasts that you've done because I find them fascinating. So as someone who prizes freshness in everything, and I've been taught to prize freshness in coffee and not to put it in the freezers because it's going to get water crystals, but it also turns out to be a big sustainability issue to always want fresh coffee. Can you talk a little bit about freshness in coffee and age in coffee and current harvest and past harvest? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So just to give an overview about how coffee is processed. So coffee grows in primarily three places in the world. It grows in Central and South America. It grows in Western Africa or Eastern Africa, excuse me, and then kind of the Pacific Rim. Obviously, coffee grows in other places, but those are kind of the three major places that you're thinking of when you're getting coffee. And it can take anywhere from three months to maybe six to eight for that coffee to go from, hey, I'm growing and we're picking this coffee to it is physically in front of you, wherever you're going to consume that coffee. Um, And like I said, that can kind of depend based on where that coffee is going to be consumed. So to get to us in the United States, it can take a couple of months. And coffee, depending on how it's processed, this is a very, very basic overview. So please don't come after me, any coffee trolls. (laughs) But um, based on how it's processed, um, that can also affect the longevity of coffee. And generally people buy coffee like a year ahead of time or with some sort of projection of like, okay, this coffee is being harvested in October of let's say 2020. I'm going to use this coffee in April of 2021. And coffee only gets processed once a year. The only other country that processes twice a year is Colombia because they're so close to the equator. If you're an importer, if you're a roaster, if you're a cafe, you kind of have to have some idea of like, okay, our customers are going to consume this much coffee. Then the pandemic happened and that slowed a lot of things down, including coffee is still getting harvested. That didn't slow down at all. So there are places that have coffee kind of just sitting around and coffee is going to degrade over time. Let's be clear. Like it will start to lose some of the flavors that maybe we prize in coffee specifically. It's acids. That doesn't mean that we can't do something about it. So roasting is essentially like the manipulation of coffee to bring out certain flavors, to bring out the beautiful organic acids that you might experience in a beautiful Ethiopian coffee, or to caramelize the sugars and bring out maybe some brown sugar notes. And there are ways that I've seen roasters really think about, okay, we have these things called past crop coffee. So past crop is coffees that are still around, even though the next crop of coffee is currently available. So if that farm that we're talking about theoretically that harvested that coffee in October of 2020. If October 21 comes around and you still have that coffee, that would be past crop. There are ways that we can, number one, preserve the coffee for longer. So how we store that coffee makes a huge, huge difference. Are we storing it in like refrigerated warehouses? Are they sealed so that they can preserve as much freshness as possible? And there are also ways that we can roast that coffee to express a different flavor from them as opposed to saying like this is past crop and this is no good. So you feel like they 
can be sort of roasted into something that's delicious. And it just might have a slightly different flavor profile. And it seems interesting for it to become something of value. Like it's, you know, it's an older coffee, it just has a different flavor profile. I mean, we see that in every single part of the food world, like how you, how you can deal with or prize a different harvest schedule. Right, exactly. And there are flavor notes in coffees as they get older that are not as good. There's um this is an esoteric kind of tasting note, but a lot of like roasters might describe a very old coffee as like papery or baggy, which was a note where I was like, well, I haven't eaten paper. Like, I don't know what that tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it is something that you could notice. And that's not to say that, like, you can't kind of work around that or figure out a way to use that coffee in a different way. So, like, for example, if I'm talking to a customer, I would say that, like, maybe 10% of the people I talk to want, like, the weird coffees. And not necessarily weird, but they want things with, like, high acid, high flavor notes, the things that maybe, like, coffee nerds would be into. And we should still keep selling these very fresh coffees to those people. But, you know, I've worked in coffee shops where 50% of what we sold was cold brew. And not to say that you can't get very specific nuanced flavors in those, but some of those dark chocolate flavors, some of those caramel flavors are probably better suited for those applications. And there are blends where we can combine like a coffee that has really sparkling acidity with maybe a coffee that has more muted caramel chocolate notes um, that we can bring out during the roasting process because those sugars are still going to be in the coffee. So we can bring out those flavors a little bit more. And is that, is that something that roasters do? Is, is there blending the way that there is in wine? You know, if you have a non-vintage wine, it's because you're getting the best of different vintages to make the perfect, complete wine. Does that exist in coffee? Oh, absolutely. So if you look at one of the classic blends that I think a lot about is uh, Stumptown Coffee's Hairbender. That's like a very, very noted blend, which is funny because they're actually very secretive about that blend. They don't really tell you what's in it. But the idea is that it changes and it rotates and you are kind of always aiming for a flavor profile. Hairbender is almost always used as an espresso. It's used for a lot of different things, but I've seen it used mostly for espresso. And you're looking for something that's just really solid, that has great body, chocolate, caramel, maybe some other slightly nuanced flavors, but you're kind of always tweaking that blend to achieve those notes. So a lot of coffee shops or a lot of roasters will have like a blend that changes out pretty seasonally based on what's available. Got it. That makes so much sense. So one of the issues around past harvest, I mean, aside from what we're talking about with flavor and make sure it tastes good, is this notion of sustainability, which in the coffee world seems incredibly important to consider right now and always, but more poignant now. Can you Tell me the things that you're thinking about around sustainability, climate change, and the challenges ahead of us. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely this past crop issue is a sustainability issue because we have to think really critically about what are we going to do with all this coffee we have? Where is it going to go? And it's just the idea of like, use what you have first. We shouldn't be throwing away coffee by any means. There is the argument that because that coffee is already purchased, that we don't have to worry about it as much. And that's another issue we have to think about is how we pay farmers. So right now, I'm not as qualified maybe to speak on this like specifically, but I can speak on it a little bit generally. But for the most part, the price that a coffee farmer is paid to make and produce coffee is not equal to what they're actually being paid. So some farmers actually make out like net negative. So they'll produce a coffee. It'll cost like, let's say a coffee costs $2.80 to produce and they're getting paid $2.50 per pound. Like that is that is common. That happens in coffee. Um, a lot of the coffee market is dictated by the sea market. Oh, the, do you mean the sea market? mean the commodities market? Yeah, exactly. 
So a lot of coffee is dictated by that market. And I think the C market price for coffee is something definitely under $2. Um, it's gotten as low as to a dollar per pound. And you can check that every day. And sometimes it's kind of shocking. I think the New York Times actually just did an article where they're like, your coffee could be more expensive because of the C market. And it didn't address at all the fact that farmers should be paid more. Interesting. If the farmers are in, in the negative, how does that work? And why do they keep growing coffee? I mean, the short answer would be colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> or is that the long answer? That's, that's a long answer, too. But coffee is produced in countries and then exported to other countries. It is a system dictated by colonialism. The idea that there are wealthy countries that want a thing and they want it to be a certain price. So that's generally how that works. And like if a farmer has to sell their coffee, they're going to sell their coffee. They need to net some of that loss back. So I actually have a couple of friends who do this really amazing project. It's called Cost of Production Covered. It's by a coffee shop called Junior's Roasted Coffee. And they talk really, really specifically about like how much they're paying for this coffee, why they're paying this much for this coffee, and how much it costs the producer to produce this coffee as well. That's like the value, I think, of buying specialty coffee is that for the most part, people in the specialty coffee industry, so like those small coffee shops that you see on the corner, uh, the roasters that you might see on like a list of like fancy coffee shops. I hate the word fancy, but you know, there it is. But like if you see like a quote unquote fancy coffee shop, like ask them about how they buy their coffee or go to their website and see how they do it. Because a lot of those places are the places that are paying more. They're going outside of the sea market to pay farmers more for their coffee. And that's kind of, like I said, the value add of maybe buying specialty is that there are people who are investing in relationships, hopefully, this isn't always the case for everybody, but hopefully investing in those relationships to promote the sustainability of coffee. Because another big problem in the coffee industry is that coffee farmers on average are skewing older because people don't want to be in that industry. Younger generations are moving to bigger cities because they're seeing that their parents are struggling or their neighbors are struggling. Um, I think the average age of a coffee farmer is like 57 or something like that. Um, and there's not like a huge next generation to take over that. So what does that mean? It, it could mean a lot of things. It could mean that in 20 years, we don't have coffee. That could also be because of climate change. I mean, there, there is that sense that climate change is going to decimate the coffee industry and we will be paying more for coffee. But what are your feelings or thoughts on the future of actually having beans? Um, we might not, <laughs> uh, which is kind of a grim future. I think we always have this like idea that somehow something will change, like we'll change our behavior before that happens. But I don't 100% know. So like you mentioned, like climate change is a huge deal because coffee is an agricultural product. It grows and it has to be harvested. And as climate change continues to affect coffee farmers, what that generally means is that harvests are way more unpredictable. So if you know that your harvest is supposed to happen in October and it happens in September or it happens in August, what does that mean for your farm? Maybe you're prepared for that change. Maybe you're not. If the rainy season comes sooner and you have to pick all of your coffee cherries as fast as possible because the rain is going to decimate any of those cherries that are left on there, what are you going to do with that? A lot of coffees are processed in their actual cherries. So coffee is like the seed of a cherry and you have to remove all the stuff around it to get to the actual seed. Some farmers will lay out coffee cherries outside and they'll let them dry that way. That's called the natural process. If rain comes 
then that's ruined. So the unpredictability of climate is absolutely going to affect farmers. Now, one of the things that you talk about on your podcast is addressing the poor farmer narrative. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if you've gone to a coffee shop, you have probably seen a picture of a farmer like shaking hands with some white dude. Um, so I actually really recently did a series on my podcast where I talked to an importer. He works in Colombia. His name is Sebastian. And he talked to farmers, young farmers, about some of the struggles that they face and how sometimes a roaster will come to their farm and want to see things. And there's this whole production about it. Like, okay, a roaster is coming. Like, we have to prepare like a lunch for them. We have to like show them around. And there's no guarantee that they're actually going to buy the coffee. So like, what what point does that serve? Why are they there? What are they looking to gain from this exposure? And then there are pictures taken. And it's like, well, what are you using my image for? So really like what I loved about that interview with Sebastian is that he offered so many solutions for farmers that were farmer centric. And initially I was like, oh, well, but what can I do or what can we do like here in the United States? And I think his point was to be like, the answer has to come from us. Like the answers and the solutions have to come from us and not necessarily to say that the, the burden is on us, but it's like we know our problems and having people who don't grow coffee, who don't live here, who don't experience our day-to-day lives and understand our culture, trying to brainstorm these solutions and be kind of tone deaf about the suggestions that they offer is kind of like a moot point. Right. Or just blatantly not not helpful. Right. Right. And it's like, how can we actually do good without necessarily taking credit for it? Like, does our do-goodiness have to involve a picture? Does it have to involve some sort of centering of ourselves to do the right thing versus let me listen to somebody else and do the thing that I'm supposed to do without necessarily taking the glory for it. And I think if you pick up a bag of coffee, there's often this narrative of like, we went to this farm and we've developed this so-and-so relationship and the do-goodingness is centered on ourselves. You've, you've talked a bit about the notion of specialty coffee and what that means. Like, What are your thoughts on specialty coffee as a subset of coffee? So specialty coffee has, I wouldn't say like a hard and fast definition, but generally speaking, when we're talking about specialty, so coffee is graded on a scale of zero to 100. Anything that scores an 80 or above is considered specialty. And almost everybody is drinking specialty. If you go to Starbucks, you're drinking specialty coffee. If you're drinking instant, maybe not. But for the most part, people are used to that experience of specialty coffee, which is kind of incredible to think about. If you think about food or if you think about wine or if you think about beer and you think every experience I've had has probably been the top 20% of an entire subsect, it's kind of incredible. That's amazing. But where does all the other coffee go? Uh, Generally goes to instant coffees. So anything that you see like in a brick, um, anything that you see that's kind of already pre-ground. I think what's really interesting is about specialty coffee. We're cognizant of a lot of the problems within the industry. You get to see a lot of that almost play out in real time in coffee shops. So a big thing right now in coffee shops is unionization. So like how do we make this industry that we treat as special, that we, we see as special, actually special in all ways? which is, I think, a really interesting mindset. So like last week, Colectivo Coffee 
which is a chain of coffee shops in Milwaukee, Madison, uh, where I am, and Chicago, they just uh, unionized. And they're the largest coffee union in the nation right now. And I think that that's going to inspire a lot of other people to also collectively organize, which is really cool. And I think that that's like a marker of the specialty coffee industry, that people who are here feel empowered and feel ready to speak up for themselves and make better workplaces. When I think about specialty coffee, it's like, yes, it's this coffee that's 80 or above, but then it's also like, who's behind the lines? Like who's working this and how do we make this industry actually special? Well, that is a topic that's incredibly important to you being that the title of the podcast, your podcast is Boss Barista. You know, the notion of people's working conditions and all that is so important. Let's put a pause on that. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to hear a little bit more about, you know, how we make coffee better for the people working in the industry. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Maine Crisp, gluten-free fruit and nut crackers made with simple, natural ingredients. It all began with buckwheat. I am obsessed with buckwheat because my husband Barkley is now gluten-free, but buckwheat is the way to go. The company's founders, Karen and Steve Getz, added nuts and seeds and dried fruits and baked them into this incredibly delicious, easy-to-enjoy crisp. Their friends loved them, their family loved them, everyone craved them. Why? Because they've got this unexpected flavor and chewy, meets crispy texture. They're a family-owned and operated business, and they work with their local community and farmers to celebrate everything that has to do with Maine. And as you guys all know, I'm obsessed with Maine. So when they're thinking about what to make with these crisps, it's their tartary buckwheat with pure maple syrup. They were thinking about health and flavor that they want everyone to share and enjoy. Because snack time is your time, you got to check out these crisps. Learn more at maincrisp.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, my guest is Ashley Rodriguez, who has a newsletter and a podcast called Boss Barista and is generally super knowledgeable about all things coffee and all things that have to do with working in coffee shops. So we heard about your first barista job. Are there any highlights of other barista jobs that you've had, like the worst or the best that you want to share and and how that maybe influenced your decision to do the podcast that you do? Yeah. So (laughs) I was telling Dana before we were recording that I've worked for five married couples, Only four of them were in coffee. No, three of them were in coffee, excuse me. But I have seen just just wild dynamics play out in front of me and not necessarily known what to do with it. Two of them got divorced while I was working there too, and that, that made for some fun times. But I think probably the moment that really stuck with me, I was working at a coffee shop in New York, and it was late, it was rainy, it was very slow. There were two of us working behind the bar, and it was a barista who had been hired at about the same time that I had been hired. And had about the same experience as I did. He had just moved from Kentucky 
and we were very much encouraged to not talk about our wages. And I remember this coworker and I were kind of skirting around each other a little bit. We were kind of giving each other the side eye, like, do you think anyone's going to come in? Like, what's what's going on? And at one point, he just came out and asked me, he's like, how much do you get paid? And I told him, I was like, I get paid $13 an hour. He was making a dollar less than I was. And we could not figure out why. And we were like, well, we're both kind of new here there must be other people who are making more than us. And there may be people who are making less than us. And we had no idea why, like we couldn't figure it out. And I think maybe a year and a half after that, I wrote an article about wage transparency. And that kind of started my journey of like, how do workplaces work? And what ways are things like money, power, titles, secrecy used to contain power in certain roles? So for us at that job, you know, we were discouraged from talking about our salaries, but like that, that's, that's a, that's a federally protected, right? Like you are allowed to talk about your wages at work. Like your boss cannot fire you if you talk about how much you make at work, but that's often a way that power is protected is by saying that you can't talk about certain things that you absolutely can. So that really was like the first moment for me where I was like, this is something that I need to explore. And this is something that I want to highlight because I don't think a lot of people know certain things because I certainly didn't. With Boss Barista, what do you think, in addition to wage, are the most important aspects of working behind the coffee bar? Because the way that you talk about being a barista, it sounds a lot like um, working in a bar where you get to know your customers. I mean, have you gotten to know your customers and their orders? And, you know, some customers are great and some customers are not. So I'm sure you have methods for dealing with those people who are just having a very bad day and taking it out on you. I I didn't work this day, but the day after the 2016 election, I talked to a couple of baristas afterwards, and they said that that was the worst day of service they've ever experienced. And they were like, people are just taking out their anger on us. Like people are just upset about the election results and their anger is misplaced. And I thought that that was really interesting um, because I wouldn't have necessarily expected that. But you're absolutely right. Like there are customers who I am incredibly close to. I actually interviewed one of them for my podcast. His name is Brian Gaffney. And he is definitely one of those like top 10% like people who who seek those really beautiful coffee experiences. And we talk a lot about just like different harvests, different farms that he's really interested in. Um, he's actually a really interesting consumer of coffee because he follows farms. He doesn't necessarily follow roasters, which I think is really interesting. That is interesting. That that has to be much harder to do. It is. He's definitely invested in a way that I think like would maybe be difficult for some other people, but he's so he's so into it. But he's one of the regular customers that I met just like through chatting because he would sit at the coffee shop and I had the very first coffee cupping that I hosted, like I was talking about earlier, those things where like you taste a bunch of coffee with a bunch of people. The very first time I hosted one, he was there. Um, so I have this connection with Brian that spans almost a decade. Um, and we've remained friends since then. I have friends who I've made solely through the coffee shop, just saying hi, saying hello, noticing that they're there every day. I think probably like the best barista nod that you can give someone is that you like see them in line. They're like three, three people behind someone else. And like you, you kind of like give them the nod, like I got your order. Like I know what you want. It feels good on both ends. Um, like it feels good for me. Cause like, I think like the single most gratifying part of being a barista is that you get to give somebody a thing that they consume immediately. And maybe you don't see it. Maybe they get their coffee and they leave. Um, but they often take a sip of it right in front of you and you get to see that experience. And like, if you work in a kitchen, you don't really get that unless you work in like an open kitchen. Um, but even then, like that process is divorced. Like you're not the person giving them the food. You're cooking the food. Often a food runner is bringing their food and then the server interacts with them. But in coffee, you get to be like, I made you this latte. That person gets to drink it in front of you. So I think that there's like a ton 
of like built in moments of connection because of that. Yes. I mean, I, I, I love that idea. And I also, I love the care that people take with the latte art. And I know you've um, interviewed people on the topic, like what's the secret to latte art and what's the highest form and where do you go to learn it? Oh God, YouTube. Oh yeah. Oh, I see. That's actually, I guess a pretty obvious answer. No, no, no. It's not, it's not, it's not obvious at all because I think that that's not intuitive because it's like a physical skill. I like to describe coffee in two kind of buckets. So a latte is espresso and milk. So I feel like espresso is a lifelong journey. Like you'll you'll just always be learning about it. You'll always get better at it, but it's fairly easy to learn. If you spent half an hour together, I could teach you how to pull a shot of espresso, no problem. And you'd be able to do it and replicate it. And you'll always keep learning. Wait, that's amazing. What can you teach me? And it's really funny because I have a daughter who's going to college tomorrow, essentially. And we bought an espresso machine so that her room could be the room with the espresso machine. And a friend literally came over and while we, you and I have been talking to teach her how to use the espresso machine because she's never used one. We don't have one at home. So like if there's any tips that I can pass on, just let me know. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, it's all about balance, all about balance. Uh, so uh, we can definitely dive into that a little bit because I might need to see the, the espresso machine before I could give uh, concrete tips, but it's, it's just all about like muscle memory and using, you know, if you, if you bake, you, you have a scale coffee is kind of the same way. Coffee is very similar to baking where you want kind of specifics. And it's not necessarily to say that like you need exactly 18 grams of coffee to pull a perfect shot of espresso. It's more saying that like, okay, I pulled 18 grams of coffee and it tastes like this. What happens if I do 19 and being able to use those reference points? Um, if, if we want to go a little full circle, this is actually one of the lessons from teaching that I pull on a lot is that coffee is a lot like a science experiment. It's actually like the world's shortest science experiment. So like you pull a shot of espresso, you taste it. And then 30 seconds later, you can do something totally different. So like treat it like a science experiment. What are your independent variables? What are your dependent variables and change one variable at a time so you can understand what you're tasting and how that small change that you made affects what you're tasting. So that's like what are how much ground coffee is in there, maybe the size of the grind, the type of the coffee. Exactly. So just change one of those things one at a time and work from there. And that's why I would say like espresso is a lifelong journey because I can probably tell you like, okay, do 18 grams of coffee in 30 seconds and get 32 grams of liquid out. And I could be like, that's a good benchmark. And I know that you'll pull like a relatively okay shot that way. And then, like I said, you'll keep building your knowledge kind of as you go. Milk steaming is like riding a bike where you're going to fail a lot. And and it's just going to be like, you're going to fall off the bike a couple times. That's fine. But the minute you get it, it clicks. And I remember when I was working at that first coffee job, I, I am very grateful that I worked at a very busy shop because I had to learn and I had 200 drinks an hour to figure it out. And maybe that maybe that's me exaggerating. But I had I had a ton of trial and error and I had a lot of chances to practice, you know, when we were busy, when we weren't busy. Really the secret to steaming milk is just about getting the angles right and hearing like that pleasant sound versus the that's not a good sound. You don't want that sound. Um, but really the secret to latte art is, is, is muscle memory and practice, um, and not trying to get too complicated. So I tell people often that like, you might see a Rosetta, which is like that little tree, or you might see a swan and those are beautiful and you will get there one day, but like everybody likes a heart and they are dead simple to do. All you have to do is I'm going to try to explain this visually, but I'm like, I have my hands out, like I'm doing it like in my hands. So you want to start far away 
first of all, you want to make sure your milk is steamed well, which like I can't, I can't recommend YouTube videos enough. And then you want to start far away from the espresso because you want the gravity of the milk to pierce the crema on the espresso. So you want the milk to go under. So you're far away, you're pouring, you're staying right in the middle. You're not even moving. You're pouring right into the middle of your cup. And then as your cup is filling up, you're going to go close because then the gravity is not going to help you there. And then the milk is going to kind of flow on top. So it's all about just gravity and angles. Like what I've described to you is just like a dot. But then if to get a heart, all you have to do is at the very end, pull through. So like think of the shape of a dot and then think of the shape of a heart. So like literally a heart is like you take a dot and you have like a line and you just pulled in the middle. So like think about that with your milk. That's what you're doing. Wow. Um, What do you think of the recent affection for tea lattes, like tea with foam? I love it. I mean, I'm all about people ordering what they like. I have no qualms about people ordering complicated drinks. I have no qualms about people being finicky with their drink. If I can make it, I'm going to do it. Like, and if you ask respectfully, like that's great. Tip your barista every time. I will, I'll I'll die on that, on that hill. Um, but I think the only thing that kind of bugs me is this like TikTok fascination with ordering the most complicated, disgusting drinks you can. Yes. That was, I mean, appalling to me, but I'm such a purist. So I, I mean, I know obviously I don't reflect the feelings of millions, actually millions. <laughs> I know it's kind of a bummer to see. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, this is really popular on TikTok. but it seems like, and this is again, a very outside perspective. Maybe there is consideration taken into account for this, but like, it seems that there's no consideration taken into account on a corporate level, what this does to baristas <laughs> because making a caramel macchiato is straightforward. Making a caramel macchiato with like eight different ingredients and they're all probably at different ends of your store is a whole different experience. And I think I would have to imagine that the standards haven't changed for Starbucks's level of like, this is how quickly a drink has to come out or things like that. So that must be really hard. And I know, I know people ordering on their apps are probably not tipping because you don't have to look at a person, <laughs> which is unfortunate because that, that, that like literally does affect your tips is that, are you in front of this person? Are you talking to them? Do they see the humanity in you? And I think that there is a little bit of a divorcing of that. So my neighborhood, I live on the Upper West Side in New York City, and there's a new coffee shop. I mean, I would want to say, you know, every month there's a new one, but there's so many new coffee shops here. Do you think that the world will hit like coffee shop saturation and it will stop or does it just keep going or do the businesses cannibalize one to the next? I want, I, I think about that a lot too, because I have like two kind of dueling ideas about this. Um, not that I don't believe in competition, but I believe that if you open a coffee shop with intentionality and you know kind of what your vision is, I generally am not super worried about these coffee shops kind of opening everywhere. Because if you know what you're doing and you understand what your neighborhood needs, I believe that those coffee shops will be successful. I don't believe a lot of coffee shops open for those reasons. I think a lot of coffee shops open because coffee looks easy. Um, and it's not, don't open a coffee shop. If you want to make money, the margins are terrible. Um, but I do wonder about the coffee shops that do open and don't take their neighborhoods into account and don't take into account, like if your rent is really cheap somewhere, why is that? Who are you displacing? Are you displacing somebody? You know, if your community is dying for a place to gather for kids, for example, are you going to be open late enough for students to come after school? And will you offer things that are tailored to their needs? The idea of competition is just like so focused on like business to business, but it's really like not taking into account like what a neighborhood might need. And there are certain places where you don't have to take that into account. I could open up a coffee shop in Times Square, I think, 
And there will always be foot traffic there. And that's okay. That's okay if you're a business person and that's your model. But I think that without that community connection and without understanding what the community needs and employing people in the community, I also think that's a huge deal. It's it's almost like ill-fated. Like you can open up a coffee shop with great foot traffic. And if you don't serve something that people in the neighborhood want, then like, what's the point? When I go through all the podcasts and that you've done and the writing and all the thinking and the collecting, I'm curious how you find all of the the roasters and the people in coffee who you admire. Because to me, I was telling you, like my neighborhood, it's grown by leaps and bounds. I can barely keep track of this. How do you keep track of the national coffee scene? And who do you uh, has risen to the top that we should be paying attention to? I think that one of the biggest growths I've had in the podcast is that I've really thought more holistically about the entire coffee supply stream and talking to more farmers and talking to more people in producing countries and talking to more people just that are just not on, on like the coffee's radar, because like, you know, like every industry, there are cool kids, there are not cool kids. And kind of trying to say like, who, who, who makes our community um, who maybe isn't getting noticed. And I try to ask that question really intentionally. I did this episode with a woman named Ana Sofia Narvaez, or Narvaez, uh, excuse me, and she is a coffee professional. She's living in Guatemala right now, but she's originally from Nicaragua. And she is just absolutely amazing and fantastic. Uh, she did an episode of my show where she actually took over as me, like she hosted it. And she did an episode on coffee consumption within country. So coffee consumption within coffee producing countries and talking about the growing coffee scene in Guatemala. And she interviewed another person in Guatemala who worked in coffee shops. And they talked about how shortening that supply stream is actually really good for them because like more of the money stays within their country. You, you, you've also been really interested in the idea of inclusion in coffee. And what I discovered in doing some research and just poking around, there have been amazing women in coffee. And at the beginning of the podcast, you said, you know, it's, there's a lot of men in coffee, but there's a lot of amazing women. And there's a really diverse group of women. And there's some incredible women with Asian heritage who are doing coffee in the U.S. Do you have thoughts on that, that like inclusivity and the people who are interesting you there? Um, in terms of inclusivity, um, I think Sarah Nguyen from Nguyen Coffee Supply is absolutely, absolutely stunning person. I haven't had them on the podcast, but I think that we're going to do an interview soon. Linda Thatch, uh, who owns uh, Little Skips, and they're based in Brooklyn. She is like a coffee OG. Like she's been around forever. From her Instagram account and from what I've seen on social media, I don't think I've seen any person work harder and seem to be more connected to their staff, um, which I think is so critical because I think it's so easy to own a business and just like never, never really interact with your staff in any meaningful way. I was embarrassed that I didn't know about this until I interviewed them. But Ji Yung Han, who owns Bean and Bean in New York, she comes from kind of like a UX background from a little bit of like a design background. And the way that I heard her talk about like how to make the menu easy for people to understand and how to make information easier for consumers to understand, because that's part of inclusivity, too, is like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you've seen this, this rhetoric happen, but like coffee shops are kind of the first signs of gentrification in a neighborhood. So how do we make coffee shops a place that is inclusive and can host a variety of people as opposed to like, you know, that rhetoric of like, there's nothing in the neighborhood until the coffee shop moved in, which I hate. 
But I think Ji-Yung does a really good job of thinking really critically about like how to present information. It's such a, a challenge and such an opportunity. Um, and some of the work that I do that isn't on the podcast is working with brands that are expanding and like need to communicate. And I think it's always, it just seems so easy, but the, the people who, who do it best, it's actually, there's such a science to it. I realized there is something that I wanted to talk about that I forgot to ask about, which was the Matchbook Project, because it's so empowering to people to express themselves through coffee. And so if you can tell listeners about that project. Absolutely. So the Matchbook Coffee Project is a project where we work with roasters one-on-one to release a coffee with no restrictions. So we tell them like, you get to pick the coffee, you get to pick swag, you get to design the label or we'll help you design the label. And it's kind of a riff on like an EP release from like an artist Um, because so many roasters work for companies and that's great. Like, you know, you, you have a job, you have, you have things that you have to do there, but oftentimes you're following a roast profile or you're hitting a marker for a certain coffee that's set by, by maybe your head roaster or you're replicating something that you did last year. So There is room for creativity, certainly, especially in very small coffee shops or very small roasters. But to have complete creative control over a coffee is really rare. So we wanted to be able to like allow roasters to really express their individuality through a coffee. So every month we work with a different roaster and we just tell them like go nuts. So this month we're working with a person named Argus Keppel. He is a roaster in the Pacific Northwest and he really wanted to do his release around cereal. So like he was tasting coffee, trying to pick which coffee he wanted to use. And then he had cups of milk that he soaked in different cereals. So like Lucky Charms in one, Fruit Loops in another, Frosted Flakes in one. And then he like strain out the cereal and he tasted it side by side, trying to find that similar flavor. That's another tip for coffee tasting. If you think that you taste fruit in that coffee or whatever, like taste the fruit. Um, But that's kind of how that goes. So every month we work with someone new, we announce them like usually a couple of days ahead of time on our Instagram. Everything happens on our Instagram, which is wild to think that whole business models happen there. But we work with really, really, really cool, really interesting people. And you get a new coffee every month. I just, I love that. It has been such a delight to talk to you, Ashley. Thank you so much for coming on um, Speaking Broadly. I love hearing all your insights about coffee and work life. And all for those of you who are listening, thanks for staying with me through this coffee series, which I feel like has been an education for me all along the way, and I hope for you as well. And I'll be back next week. So have a great week. And um, thanks again, Ashley. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.